these NASGP monthly clinical webinars often lend themselves really well to also going out as a podcast, and February 2023's was no exception, with Dr Charlie Andrews from Crohn's and Colitis UK talking to us about inflammatory bowel disease. So please listen on to hear Charlie's talk. Great, thanks very much. I hope you can all hear me um, uh, well. So um, firstly, thank you very much for asking me to come and talk. I'm always really interested in talking about inflammatory bowel disease, both from a clinical perspective, but also as a personal perspective. So I, I have had ulcerative colitis in the past. Um, and as we go through, there may be areas where I mention my own personal experience. Um, so for me, it's it's great to be able to talk to you today. I've been given the title IBD, what do GPs need to know? So I've tried to kind of distill it down to some of the key points. And I'll tell you a bit about what I'm going to talk about and a bit about what I'm not going to talk about on the next slide. Um, but just first of all, a bit about me. So I'm Charlie Andrews. I'm a GP based uh, in somewhere called Midsummer Norton, which is just to the south of Bath in the southwest of England. Um, I'm also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology. So um, I do some endoscopy work. Uh, I've been running a clinic at my local hospital for a couple of years, just seeing everything um, in gastroenterology. So just a, a bit of everything. Um, I, uh, I'm also a committee member for the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology, which is a great organisation that delivers sort of education and, um, and support to GPs who are interested in gastroenterology. Um, and I've been asked to talk today by Crohn's and Colitis UK, who, in my opinion, are a fantastic charity that do amazing work for people with Crohn's and colitis. Um, and part of, I think that part of the reason that, that I'm talking to you today is that they've launched a, um, a campaign to try to improve diagnosis of people with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And they've, they've released a, an online symptom checker to help patients sort of understand a little bit more about what sort of symptoms they should be presenting to their GP with that might prompt some investigations for inflammatory bowel disease. I'm going to leave Rachel, Rachel probably ex, sort of expand on that a little bit when she comes in at the end. So I won't talk too much about that today, but um, needless to say, they are trying to improve um, uh, the, the detection of inflammatory bowel disease, which is something I fully endorse and agree we should be doing. Um, so moving on to the first slide. So I try to think about what should GPs know in about 20 minutes. So this probably be 20 minutes, 30 minutes sort of talk to just, and, and, and I thought, what do GPs need to know? Well, first of all, they need to know when to suspect uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So I thought we'd cover kind of some of the commoner symptoms, a couple of useful questions that you could put into your history taking for patients with potentially non-specific lower GI symptoms that might just prompt you to think about inflammatory bowel disease a bit more. I'll cover a little bit about extra intestinal features as well, which is sometimes easily over, overlooked, um, but can also add to that sort of suggestion that this patient might have something like inflammatory bowel disease. I'm going to focus a little bit on testing because fecal calprotectin is a fantastic tool for differentiating between IBS and IBD and, uh, and, and correct use of it can be absolutely vital when working up our patients. So I want to focus a little bit on that because that's really important. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about managing flares of inflammatory bowel disease. The, the GPs really do need to have an understanding about how to approach a patient who is presenting with symptoms of flare. And so we'll look at 
uh, how we can assess the severity of their of their flare. Um, we can look at ways to treat and manage, including steroid sparing agents, and uh, and we'll look at how to use steroids um, appropriately in IBD flare management. Some of the things that I'm not going to be talking about here are, are more secondary care aspects of care. So, for example, um, biologic agents and immunosuppressants, so sort of the secondary care medications that patients might be taking. Uh, I'm not going to focus that much on them because we simply don't really have time in order to keep it as focused on primary care as possible. Um, I'm also not going to talk huge amounts about um, aspects such as fertility, nutrition, etc. Important though these things are, um, again, I've had to try and tailor it a little bit to keep it as, as focused as possible um, to what you need to know. Uh, if you do want to know a bit more, I when I was a IBD clinical champion for the RCGP in Crohn's and Colitis UK, which was between 2018 and 2020, I put together a series of podcasts um, for inflammatory bowel disease, where we looked at things like fertility issues, we looked at nutrition, etc. Um, and they are designed for clinicians, and they can be found on the IBD toolkit on the RCGP website. So if you type in IBD toolkit, there's a section with podcasts. And so if you want a bit more information about that, it's all there for you to, to find. So let's just start off by thinking about why it's important to understand how to diagnose IBD and how to manage it. So there were some old studies of how common this condition was um, done about 15 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago. And the often quoted figure was one in 250 of the population. A more recent large study in Scotland, um, which has been published and is now the widely sort of, you know, accepted figure of prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease is actually that it's one in 125 of the population. And this Scottish study identified that the prevalence has increased by about 4.3% every year since 2008. And the projected prevalence is going to be over 1% by 2030. So not only is this a relatively common condition, so for example, if you've got 10,000 patients within your practice, you've probably got 80 patients with inflammatory bowel disease. It's not only fairly common, but it's actually becoming more common. And if we look around the world, we're also seeing this pattern of increasing prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease, often in countries which are becoming more westernized or urbanized in their, in, in their approach. And so there does appear to be probably an environmental trigger that's pushing up this prevalence worldwide. Um, and so we just need to be aware that we are seeing more of it uh, and you're going to be seeing it in your, in your clinics. Mortality and morbidity is associated with this condition. So acute severe flares of inflammatory bowel disease do carry a, uh, a rate of, well, in, in ulcerative colitis, colectomy. So, so, so one in five patients with acute severe colitis will develop, will, will require a colectomy, so removal of the colon. Um, there's also morbidity associated with this as well. Whilst this is extremely rare now in the age of biologics, it used to be more common uh, that the people could actually die from flares of, of, of uh, inflammatory bowel disease. But we also have to just bear in mind that these patients are at increased risk of colorectal cancer. So generally, after 10 years of having the condition, they have a 1% risk of having colorectal cancer, which rises to 5% once they've had it for 20 years. And this is really the basis of why patients need to be having regular colonoscopy if they have inflammatory bowel disease affecting the colon. 
Now, impact on quality of life. So this is a condition that can affect all aspects of your life. It's very unpredictable. Um, patients may have plans for the future, which can be completely um, put, a, put awry by a flare of the disease. So um, I've had inflammatory bowel disease before. It used to be very difficult to plan anything because you never quite knew when you were going to be affected. Um, I used to enjoy long distance running, but it was very hard to train for anything because you never knew when a flare was going to hit you and it could put you out of action for a month, two months, perhaps more. Um, so it has a huge impact on quality of life. And just to bear in mind that often it's younger people that are developing inflammatory bowel disease. It will affect everything that they're trying to do, if, you know, potentially very busy lives, potentially children, um, and, and trying to balance all of that with a chronic disease like this, which is unpredictable, but can be extremely debilitating, can be very hard. And finally, we know that prompt management leads to better outcomes absolutely clear. If we can turn that ship around when they're developing a flare of their condition, we can we can significantly improve their outcomes. So it's really important that we keep inflammatory bowel disease in mind because it's commoner than we think and because we know that if we get treatments in early, we can improve their outcomes. So we're going to move on to diagnosis. So this is the, the first section of, of the talk. And, and I always think it's helpful to look at the two conditions. The primary conditions that we're going to be looking at are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And first of all, just think about who develops these conditions. So it's got a bimodal um, uh, in, incident. So firstly, one common age group is the second to fourth decades of life. And then there does appear to be another peak between the ages of 50 and 60 years. So clearly younger adults, but also we've got to just bear in mind it can occur a bit later as well. And I do recall someone who was who appeared very poorly. He was in his mid-60s and he was he had pretty awful diarrhea, was losing significant amounts of weight and, and clearly significant concerns around cancer, who turned out to have Crohn's disease. And once we started to manage that with a biologic agent, he was so much better. Um, so we do need to think about it even in the older age group, but clearly we're going to be probably putting these patients down, well, we will be putting these patients down a two-week weight pathway, um, but they're going to end up with a colonoscopy. And actually, quite it's not uncommon for patients to be diagnosed with IBD via a two-week weight pathway, essentially. But just thinking about the diseases themselves helps us to understand some of the presentations that we see. So ulcerative colitis affects the lining of the colon, and it causes the submucosa to shed. So you end up with a lot of bleeding. So bleeding is a really common sign there. It generally starts very low down in the, in the rectum. Um, and so pa patients can get this feeling of, of needing to go to the toilet. So tenesmus, they'll develop tenesmus because it's, it's very painful down in the, in the rectum. The inflammation that you see in ulcerative colitis is generally confluent and starts at the, at the tail end. So it starts in the rectum and moves proximally. Um, and that helps us to, to describe where they have their, their disease. So for example, you could have proctitis, which is just right down at the, at the lower end. You could have left-sided colitis, which affects clearly the left side of the colon, or you can have pancolitis, which affects the entire colon. Uh, and I will tell you why that's important a little bit later on. Crohn's disease, slightly different. Well, quite a lot different, actually. So um, characterized by skip lesions. So it doesn't generally have confluent lesions. You can have patches here and there. And these can occur anywhere in the, um, in the gastrointestinal tract. 
So anywhere from the mouth down to the bottom, you can get these ulcerated areas. And what we generally find is that it's not confined to that submucosal sort of inner layer of the, of, of the bowel. It's actually transmural. So you get this inflammation throughout all the layers of the bowel. And so this can lead to problems such as abscesses. So you can develop abscesses or you can get bits of bowel sticking to each other and developing fistulae. So um, you can get enterocolic fistulae, you can get enterovesicular fistulae. So, so fistulae are common as well. And the third thing that, that, that is also possible with this transmural, thick, transmural inflammation is thickening and stricturing. So strictures, abscesses, uh, and... Um, and fistulae. These are all things that we sometimes see in Crohn's disease. And so it can obviously impact on the presentation. So for example, a patient with known strictures who comes into you with severe abdominal pain, we've got to be thinking about obstruction, for example. Patients who are febrile, we're thinking about abscesses. So we need to think about how these, how these conditions occur in order to understand some of the presentations that we're going to see. I put down there IBDU, so that's IBD unclassified. It affects between 5 and 15% of patients with IBD, and it's where there's just a bit of a crossover with symptoms, and it's hard to pin down um, exactly which type of um, inflammatory bowel disease they actually have. But I'm not going to focus much on that. I'm going to be focusing mainly on Crohn's and ulcerative colitis today. <clears throat> so... Typical symptoms, ulcerative colitis, we've already covered this a little bit. So rectal bleeding, really common. 90% will have bloody diarrhea. That's the primary symptom of, of ulcerative colitis because you're shedding your um, the lining of the bowel and it's coming at your bottom end. So you get that bleeding. Abdominal pain is not uncommon. So patients will often get uh, abdominal pain. Just bear with me a moment. <coughs> The abdominal pain that patients often will get is very low down abdominal pain. I remember when I had quite severe colitis, it felt like someone was tightening a belt around my lower abdomen um, and it was extremely painful. You sort of doubled over in pain and then it would ease. Um, so it's sort of a low abdominal pain. Tenesmus, an urgency because you've got inflammation down in the rectum where stool is sitting, wanting to come out. And, and, and you end up with these symptoms as well. So also of colitis, those are the sort of symptoms that you're looking for. Crohn's disease is a different beast, slightly trickier really, um, because actually the symptoms can be a little bit more vague. So it can be things like abdominal pain, diarrhea, um, fatigue and malaise. These are all things that we can see in lots of different conditions. So it can be a bit harder to, um, to diagnose Crohn's, but things that might differentiate it would be things like weight loss. So these are obviously more, um, you know, less functional symptoms and, and more path, more um, uh, physical symptoms here. Um, other things, things like fever, which we've already commented on before. Um, so Crohn's disease, a little bit more tricky to pick up because Less commonly will they have diarrhea. More commonly, they'll just be feeling tired. They'll have abdominal pain, diarrhea. So we've got to have our, um, you know, have it on our radar and have our thinking cap on when we see patients with those sort of symptoms. In terms of some of the sort of more differentiating things that you could ask your patients to try and help you if you're presented with someone with, for example, Crohn's disease with these slightly more nebulous symptoms that you're just not quite sure. Nocturnal waking to defecate is, is a real red flag. So patients with, um, with functional bowel conditions do not get up at night to go to the toilet. Uh, that's, uh, they go to the toilet to pass urine, that's fine. But to open up your bowels at night is not normal. It is not common. Um, and so this 
this is a really good differentiating question, which I always ask patients. Um, do you do you need to get up at the night to empty your bowel? Okay. And if they say actually yes, then then that's actually, you know, I see that as a bit of a red flag and, and makes me want to need to investigate them more for inflammatory bowel disease. Family history of inflammatory bowel disease. This is another good question because there is some hereditability with Crohn's disease. Um, and so I always will ask, is there anyone in your family who's got Crohn's disease or colitis? So it's generally quite a good question. Again, just gives you a little bit more of a hint as to whether uh, this could be inflammatory bowel disease. Ulcerative colitis has less of a hereditability, but, the, but, but Crohn's disease certainly does. So these are, these are helpful questions to ask. Sometimes helpful to ask about smoking. So smoking puts you at higher risk of Crohn's, but lower risk of ulcerative colitis. Don't really know why that is. Wouldn't probably recommend my patients with ulcerative colitis take up smoking in order to manage their condition. However, we do know that there is this link between smoking and Crohn's disease. So one of the key interventions when you've got a patient with flares of Crohn's is trying to make sure that they are not smoking, trying to get them off cigarettes if they are, or if they are smoking. And then finally, thinking about extra intestinal features. So we may want to ask them about these. And I'm just going to bring you up some of the extra intestinal features that we might see. <clears throat> so arthritis is reasonably common actually in people with inflammatory bowel disease. And this can present in a couple of different ways. So you could have a um, uh, monoarticular or porciarticular arthropathy. So that could affect the large joints. They may be suffering with diarrhea at the time. So these sort of monoarticular mono um, sort of arthralgias are more commonly associated with disease activity. Um, and that might be a red hot angry joint. Uh, so just thinking about, about that. So patient with bowel symptoms plus a painful knee, for example, and, and sort of some erythema and swelling might want to think about that. There is another type of inflammatory arthritis, which is a polyarticular small joint arthritis that you can see, which has an appearance, a little bit of kind of a, a you know, a rheumatoid or inflammatory arthritis. Um, this is often not linked with disease activity, but can be seen in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Both of these types of arthralgia are, are non-erosive. So it's a non-erosive arthritis. So it's not in the same category as, as, our, as our rheumatoid arthritis, for example. If you were to do x-rays, you wouldn't see uh, erosions. However, it's just really important to be thinking about it in, in patients where they may have gastrointestinal symptoms plus some arthralgia. Um, another one just to highlight there is primary sclerosis and cholangitis. So this is seen in, um, uh, in um, sorry, in ulcerative colitis primarily. Okay, so this is an association with ulcerative colitis, and it occurs in somewhere between two and seven percent of people with ulcerative colitis. And it uh, it's important to be aware of because it carries significant morbidity and mortality. And the survival rates with primary sclerosis and cholangitis is between twelve and seventeen years. Um, and these patients will often develop uh, cirrhosis. So it's really important to be aware. And one of the things to look out for here is a raised ALP. So if you've got a patient with known inflammatory bowel disease um, and you do the bloods and you're noticing a persistently raised ALP, I think it's important to be considering primary sclerosis and cholangitis because they'll need um, secondary care input for that. So in terms of the assessment, we do an awful lot on the telephone nowadays. So is there any benefit in doing an examination of your patient? Well, perianal Crohn's disease um, 
may be necessary. So if you've got a patient with known Crohn's or known perianal Crohn's, then you might want to do that. If you're trying to make the diagnosis, you know, you, you may find that they have um, perianal fistulae, um, they have some stenosis or pain when you examine the back passage, septic compli complications. So as I said, you can develop abscesses, particularly in Crohn's. Um, so you may want to assess them to look for any um, signs, of, signs of sepsis. As I said, extraintestinal features, you may want to may want to examine them to look for those. And sometimes we want to get that more, more objective assessment of weight and, 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 and possible malnutrition. In terms of working a patient up, all patients should have bloods at first presentation. So I had someone actually this morning who we were wondering whether she may have inflammatory bowel disease. So we're going to arrange all of these bloods. So FBC, urine, CRP, celiac screen. Important to remember the celiac screen there. Um, and we're also going to arrange some stool tests. So I'll often check for, um, for infection because that can sometimes present in a similar way with an acute onset of diarrhea. Um, so, so commonly I'm checking a stool MCNS. But, but key test here is the fecal calprotectin. And I'm going to bring that up next. So this is a BSG flowchart for how to use fecal calprotectin. And, um, and as you'll see, it tries to, it's sort of, it's for, for adults between 16 and 40. Um, the key here is that you're trying to make sure that you're not using fecal calprotectin in people where a two-week weight pathway or, um, you know, fit testing is, is, is needed. So patients with suspected cancers, we should be thinking primarily uh, about bowel cancer. And as I said, some of them may be diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease via that pathway, but we need to make sure that we're not inappropriately using calprotectin in certain age groups. But calprotectin is a fantastic test. It really is. And I'm highlighting this lower part of, of, the, of the diagram. So fecal calprotectin is a protein that's released by neutrophils within the gut. You could really think of it as the CRP of the gut. So it is the inflammatory marker for the gut. And so if you test someone with fecal calprotectin, if you test someone for fecal fecal calprotectin, and it's extremely high, it's very suggestive that there is inflammation. If it's very low, it's a lot less likely. So it's something that you add into your clinical acumen and your assessment of the patient. And just looking at these numbers down below, the, the recommendation is that if the fecal calprotectin is less than 100, it's very unlikely they've got inflammatory bowel disease. So if you've got a patient who is symptomatic with things like diarrhea, abdominal pain, fecal calprotectin less than 100, no other red flag features, probably reasonably safe to think about treating them as IBS. So the rule out for inflammatory bowel disease here is 99%. So you can be pretty confident that they don't have inflammatory bowel disease if it's less than 100. Switching to the other side of the diagram, if it's over 250, that is a high result. So these sorts of patients, they're more likely to have inflammatory bowel disease. So the probability here is of, of, of having inflammatory bowel disease is approaching 50%. So this group of patients, there's going to be quite a lot of inflammatory bowel disease here if they've got symptoms and a raised level, you're going to want to refer them urgently to gastroenterology. If it's in the middle, so this is the intermediate level, it's a little trickier to know what to do with. Okay, So just thinking about, um, you know, do we repeat the test? Well, if you get an intermediate level, the advice would be to repeat it in two to four weeks time. 
And just bear in mind that certain things can falsely elevate your calprotectin levels. So various conditions, things like diverticulitis, um, gastric infections, um, et cetera, and, and actually cancer as well can increase your calprotectin. That's why it's not a very helpful, helpful test for that. Um, so remembering that certain conditions can falsely elevate it and so can certain medications. So for example, NSAIDs and PPIs. So if you've done the test on someone who's taking a PPI and the level come back at 150, you're going to want to get them off the PPI and then recheck in four weeks. Okay. Um, so that's, that's what we, what we want to be doing there. So moving on to flare management for the next five minutes or so. I've separated this up into ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So the first bit is going to be looking at the approach to a patient with ulcerative colitis. And the second will be an approach to the patient with um, Crohn's disease. So these are the three key questions I ask myself whenever I see a patient with IBD who thinks that they're having a flare. I say to myself, is this a flare? Is it safe to manage this patient in the community? And then I say to myself, the key question, how on earth am I going to do this? What am, how am I going to manage my patient? So first of all, is it safe to manage this patient in the community? With ulcerative colitis, we have a pretty helpful assessment tool. This was devised about 60 or 70 years ago, so true love wits criteria, but it's still kind of useful and it's still in use. And it kind of separates it into mild, moderate and severe ulcerative colitis. And it's looking at parameters like how many times a day are they going? Are they getting bleeding? And is it happening with every, every bowel movement? Are they unwell? I mean, these are all fairly sensible and sort of, I'm sure that you would check these things and factor them in when you're deciding how severe their disease is anyway. But, um, you know, if they're passing stool more than six times a day, they're getting bleeding every time they go. Maybe they've got a borderline temperature. You know, this is pushing patients into a more severe side. Whereas if actually they're going a couple of times a day, bleeding every now and then, um, you know, this, this would be slightly different. That would be a mild, more mild end of the spectrum. With Crohn's disease, we don't really have a very good flare risk assessment tool. There is this thing called the Crohn's disease activity index, which is primarily used in secondary care. Um, it's extremely complicated, and, and I don't think it's particularly helpful for us on the front line when we're confronted with a patient with symptoms who's got known Crohn's who thinks they've got um, uh, who thinks that they've got a, a flare of their disease. I generally be using my clinical assessment. I'd be using things like the news um, news tool to try and assess how unwell they are. Because actually a, a patient who's going to lose 10 times a day, who's really unwell, clearly doesn't really matter, you know, whether they've got a bit of arthralgia going on or, or some iritis, they're, they're going to be going for an urgent assessment at the hospital anyway. And which sort of area, which sort of patients would I be less keen to manage in the community? Well, patients with severe IBD flares, I wouldn't. So mild to moderate, I think I'd be happy to have a go at, providing there weren't other problems or other areas that would put them at higher risk. So for example, if they're on biologic therapy, I probably would be less keen to treat them in the community. To be fair with you, if someone's on a biologic, they're generally under close monitoring by the hospital. So often they're either going up to the hospital on a regular basis or they have good contact with their IBD nurse specialist. So generally they might be managed in a slightly different way. If someone's had previous abdominal surgery, so for example, a patient with Crohn's who's had a stricturoplasty or something of that sort, who's presenting with new 
more severe symptoms. Again, I would I would want that to be managed by secondary care. And if there's just uncertainty around the cause of the symptoms, so if you're just not quite sure what's going on and maybe tests are not giving you the answers that you're looking for, then again, I would want to get secondary care support. And that could be through advice and guidance, it could be through contacting the IBD nurse specialist or potentially through admitting them. So here we go, quick flow chart of um, how to manage a patient with ulcerative colitis in the community. So we ask ourselves, do they have acute severe colitis? Are there reasons why we shouldn't be managing them in the community? If there are, we can either discuss or admit. So if there aren't, we're going to want to just get a bit of a more objective assessment. So we're going to arrange bloods, stool samples. Just one, one comment about CRP. Because inflammatory bowel disease affects the inner lining of the gut, we often don't see a particularly significant CRP rise. So uh, I had acute severe colitis and my CRP never actually went above about 40. So just got to remember that CRP is not a particularly helpful tool um, in ulcerative colitis. We should probably be putting a little bit more emphasis on symptoms and things like calprotectin. Should be done nonetheless, though. And then we ask ourselves, where is their disease? And I told you why that this would come back from the beginning. So, as I said, we've got people with proctitis, left-sided colitis, or pancolitis. Your patient with ulcerative colitis will be on oral mesalazine, uh, and they'll be taking that uh, every day to maintain remission. We know that it's a really effective drug for maintaining remission. So they could be on something like Octasa or mesalazine every day. And we should really encourage them to take that because we want to reduce their incidence of, uh, of flare. So this patient, your patient will be taking an oral, oral treatment anyway, most likely. But now we want to know where their disease is. So if your patient has got a flare and you know that they've got very low, very low disease, so they might have proctitis or very low left-sided disease. We know that things like suppositories and foams will be really good at getting to the, to the area that we need. So we may want to add those into their treatment. If they've got left-sided colitis, we need something that's going to get a bit further up around the bowel. So they may need to use an enema. So that would be uh, probably the best thing to do. If they've got pancolitis, to be honest with you, nothing rectally is going to get all the way around the bowel. Okay, so we need to be using oral preparations more, but that doesn't mean we can't use an enema to see if we can try and get some of the disease under control. So if you've got your patient, they're taking their mesalazine, for example, on, a, on, an, on an ordinary dose, the first thing we want to do is increase that. So we're going to double up the dose. So in a patient with pancolitis, we're going to double up the dose of the mesalazine. So just go from 2.4 to 4.8 grams. Simple. If they've got left-sided colitis or proctitis, we're going to do that potentially. So we're probably going to increase their, their dose of oral mesalazine, but we're going to add in our rectal preparation. And as I said, if it's proctitis, you might want to go for a suppository. If it extends a bit further up, probably want to go with a foam. And then if it's left-sided, go for an enema. And we're going to review them at two weeks. Okay, so we want to find out how they're doing. Are they responding? And if they're responding and everything's settling down, continue with that stepped up treatment for another eight weeks, and then you can return to maintenance. But if they haven't, we're going to need to start oral prednisolone. So oral steroids, these are, it's important that we're aware of how to use these. So in, in flares of, of ulcerative colitis, and if we're using prednisolone in Crohn's, we start at 40 milligrams per day and we reduce by five milligrams every week. So that's an eight week course, 252 tablets, that is it. So that's what we need to give them. Starting high, reducing slowly, eight-week course. 
hopefully a patient will be resolving at that point. But we do need to think about escalating therapy if any of the below apply. So, for example, if they're needing more than two courses in 12 months, um, if they can't reduce below 15 milligrams, they start. we start to describe this as steroid refractory or steroid um, or essentially steroid refractory. <coughs> or if they're relapsing within six weeks of stopping. And just remember about bone health. So calcium and vitamin D for all patients that you put on and just risk assessing <coughs> whether they need anything further. So. Sorry. <coughs> Last couple of slides, I do apologize. I'm, I've been duty all morning, so I use my voice a lot. So I apologize about that. Um, <clears throat> Crohn's disease, slightly different. Um, and we're going to treat it in a different way. Your patient with Crohn's, if they're not on a biologic or an immunosuppressant agent, may well be on absolutely nothing for their disease. Um, and they may present to you say, actually, I think I'm having a flare. And again, <clears throat> again, we're going to use the same risk assessment, but treatment is different. So here we go. So commonly patients will have terminal ileal Crohn's disease, so affecting the lower part of the small bowel. That's the commonest pattern. And we know that budesonide is really effective for these patients. So this is a type of, it's a newer generation of, of, of corticosteroids. It's more locally released. Um, it has fewer side effects. So it's a really good option. I kind of think of it, think of it as the diet coke of steroids because it's just less systemically absorbed. So it's better tolerated. So we could be thinking about budesonide, nine milligrams daily for eight weeks and then stop. You don't need to wean, you just give them that and stop. If they have more colonic Crohn's disease, you may well need to give them prednisolone, okay? So the budesonide may not be quite as effective if you have a patient with, with, with colonic Crohn's disease. But as I said, the commonest pattern is terminal ileal Crohn's. How do you know where their disease is? Well, look at their clinic letters. It should all be there for you. And then if they've got perianal Crohn's, we know that that could be more aggressive. So we, we, I'd, I'd recommend that you discuss that with secondary care. So just to finish off, IBD Nurse brilliant resource for patients and GPs. If you want to find out the contact number for your local uh, IBD Nurse Specialist, Crohn's and Colitis UK have an amazing page on their site where you can identify your area just like it shows down there. Click on it and it will give you the contact details for the IBD Nurse Specialist in your area. So really helpful for advice. The Inflammatory Bowel Disease Toolkit. So this was developed um, several years ago as part of the um, clinical champion role that I was taking part in. So we put all of the resources that we could think of together um, on, on, on a single website. So if you type in Inflammatory Bowel Disease Toolkit, it will come up with this. We got sort of how to manage flares. Um, and on that note, we have um, two flare pathways, one for osteoarthritis colitis and one for Crohn's disease, which are recently being updated. They essentially go through everything that I've just talked about, about how to approach your patient with, um, with either Crohn's or osteoarthritis colitis. So that is it really. So that was literally a whistle-stop tour through, um, through inflammatory bowel disease. And it ran over a little bit. I do apologize, but essentially diagnostic delay, we need to keep it in mind because Crohn's can be difficult to diagnose. Calprotectin is an amazing test, but we need to use it sensibly and, and, and be aware of how to use it properly. Um, flares are common. 
I think it's between, I think about one in two patients will have a flare every year. Uh, I think it's about 50% flare rate. So quite common. So we need to have a bit of a strategy for how we're going to approach that patient. So thinking, is it safe for me to manage this patient in the community? And what am I going to do? Think about your steroid sparing treatments before reaching for steroids and make sure that you use steroids appropriately. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Charlie. Um, Rachel, um, we're going to come to you for some signposting in a minute, but thank you for all of those links in the chat. Um, we've had a question through straight away, Charlie, so I hope you, you, um, you've had a, another drink of water. Um, Jack Lavender has asked um, if you could comment on testicular pain and IBD um, based on a recent presentation. Mm, um, I'm not sure where that would sort of fit in, to be honest with you, I'm afraid. Um, not not something I've really come across, to be honest, testicular pain in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, no, I've not really come across that, I'm afraid. I could be referred pain from the abdomen. Um, that's certainly possible, but I can't see how else that would sort of tie in, to be honest with you. There's certainly no sort of orchitis connections with IBD that I'm aware of. That's interesting. The, the patient presented with it during a flare. And uh, when I looked at various sort of guidelines and websites and things, it was mentioned as something you could get in IBD. Okay. Um, and he didn't have anything else that made me think it was orchitis or torsion or anything. Um, and it did gradually improve when he was treated for his flare. But I'd never heard of it before. To be honest with you, I, I I haven't really either. And all I can think is is whether it's sort of referred abdominal pain or or something of that sort. I don't know. It's a tricky one. But yeah, um, yeah that's dull. interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thank I'll you. Look into thank that. You. Thanks. Yeah, so we've got about um we're we're on about twenty two quarter two at the moment. So we've we've assigned fifteen minutes for questions. Obviously, if we don't need that, then we can wrap up sooner. But oh, Chloe, you've got something to ask. Um, uh, what what do you tell patients about use of enema or foam? Um, people seem reluctant. Yeah, so it is, it is often a problem. I mean, in, in, in this country, I think we are a bit more reluctant to sort of reach for the rectal preparations, but they are really very, very effective. And, you know, if you've got someone with low down ulcerative colitis, it's the best way of getting the medication to where it needs to be. So I think it's about really explaining to them why you're giving them that. So, so the rationale. Um, and, it, you know, how, how do you actually physically, you know, I, I always say to patients, you know, find a quiet time. You need to lie on your side, on your bed, pop it in your back passage, just, just relax, just relax for 15, 20 minutes and allow that enema or that foam to get to where it needs to be. Um, but it's, it's a really effective treatment. And so I think it's about explaining to patients exactly why you're giving it to them um, so they really understand. And hopefully they'll, that will increase their sort of compliance with it and, and improve their use of it. I mean, I've got lots of patients who find them brilliant and actually they much prefer using them to steroids. So it's, it's kind of, you know, steroids are not particularly pleasant to take. Patients dislike them. And if we're sort of saying, look, there's this great treatment, you need to, you need to pop it in your back passage um, to make it work. But hopefully it will mean that we don't need to reach for steroids and we can avoid that. Then, then that's, that, that's sort of, you know, trying to really explain why you're giving it to them. I think patients just need knowledge and, and information about it. Lovely, thanks. Yeah, we can take questions in the chat or you can unmute and ask directly. 
I know I've read I, I've read a little bit about um, the higher risk of mental health, well, you know, common mental health problems like depression, anxiety. Charlie, I wonder if there's anything for GPs to know about that. Yeah, so you know, it's a chronic condition. It's a very un- unpredictable condition, and we know that patients with chronic conditions are at higher risk of mental health issues. Um, and this is certainly one of those conditions where we can certainly see um, th- these sorts of things: depression, anxiety, etc. And we've just got to be really aware of that. And I, I, you know, I make it my practice to ensure that when I see a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, I'm asking about how they're getting on, how, how is how is it affecting their life, etc. Having had an inflammatory bowel disease myself, I'm, you know, I'm fully aware of how it how it impacts every aspect of your life. And um, I mean, I I was I did a I was studying a history degree and I had to take a, a year out because I got so unwell um, that that I was in and out of hospital. And you know, this has a big impact. You know, and and also you've got patients who are potentially incontinent at the age of twenty, for example, they can't leave the house. I mean, this has huge impact on on, on mental health. Unfortunately, there's no you know, Crohn's disease is brilliant. Okay, so not unfortunately. Crohn's Clyde UK are brilliant and have lots and lots of resources to help people um, with this. Um, but, you know, counselling services, et cetera, we're struggling with them in every area and trying to get prompt counselling is, is not easy. So, you know, our talking therapies locally, it does take time, but these are sort of resources we need to be accessing. But I think also just, just making sure that your patient feels heard and listened to when they, when they see you is really important. Um, and just sort of, you know, make sure that you ask is, is one thing. You know, that's a good starting point. That's lovely. Thank you. Yeah. And um, Crohn's and Colitis UK, uh, I'm sure, Rachel, you can talk a bit more about the uh, support groups that are available. Um, the I think you guys have a helpline as well. Yeah, shall I come in now? So yeah, so my name is Rachel. I'm the head of research and evidence um, at Crohn's and Colitis UK. I'm a former GP, but now work um, fully for the charity when I do our work across research, evidence, healthcare professionals. Um, and the reason we were really keen to talk to you all um, is, as Charlie mentioned, we kicked off a campaign around early diagnosis in the autumn, a public campaign called Cut the Crap. Um, which is um, where the symptom checker comes in. And some of you may see patients coming to you with a letter after they completed the symptom checker. And the aim is to really help people kind of speak up about the symptoms, because what we were hearing was that feeling of being able to, unable to find the right words um, and needing something, kind of that validation of, could this be inflammatory bowel disease? Um, have you thought about it? Um, is, is the message that we want. We, we know that you are all really under pressure and busy, and we want to make it as easy as possible for people to speak up about what they're concerned about. Um, so, so yeah, on our website, we have um, a huge range of resources, including for mental health um, and a whole range of um, living with the with living with the conditions. Um, we have our helpline. We have online chats. Uh, we also do virtual social events where people can come together in an online environment um, and share their experiences. Um, and we're really keen to support all of you we've got a range of resources for community healthcare professionals including gps charlie's mentioned the um ibd toolkit um from, with which we did with the royal college of gps um, that's about to be updated into a newer format which should be easier to navigate and really help you get what you need um, we've also um just been doing some work with envy medical um webinar podcast and two new um, cpd modules uh, which launched last week which are completely free to any healthcare professional um so yeah if anyone wants to hear more about how to get involved with us or uh, we have a healthcare professional newsletter i'll put the link in the chat we're always keen to hear from a range of gps that are keen to help support us those that are interested in inflammatory bowel disease 
That's fantastic. Thanks, Rachel. Um, we're just going to do, we're, we're not quite at time, so we're just going to do one final shout out for questions. Meg, I noticed you've unmuted. Hi. Yeah, I was just going to ask about, um, in terms of consider when you're considering sort of tampering with a patient's treatment regime, um, because I mean, often in the past, I, I think if I've had patients that I thought had flares of IBD, I've just done the standard, oh my God, speak to the IBD nurse. Um, and these have been really, really useful because it gives us some confidence, I think, in, in being able to manage that. Would uh, Really, when you're looking at tinkering with treatment, do you need to have those blood test results back to kind of give added confirmation? Or are you happy really for a lot of this to be done clinically, especially if a patient really does feel that this is a flare? That's a really good question, Meg. Thanks for bringing that one up because actually I should have mentioned that and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. So um, if you are, so, so you, say you've got a patient with ulcerative colitis, they're taking mesalazine 2.4 every day and, and they say, you know, I'm getting bloody diarrhea again and, and you've looked at them, they're not, they don't need admission, but you do want to do something. I wouldn't wait for the results to come back. I would treat them. So I would double up their oral mesalazine. I go up to 4.8. And if they, if, if I looked at a clinic letter and it said they had left-sided colitis, I'd probably add in a, I'd probably add in a rectal preparation as well and just say, look, I think, you know, it sounds a lot like your symptoms are fitting with a flare. I'm going to treat you. We'll get the bloods and we'll get the calprotectin um, ASAP. So if you could do that, you know, your, your, your stool sample today, then we can get started on treatment after that. Um, then, you know, that's how I do it. So I wouldn't, you don't wait for the results, essentially. Yeah. So get started. You're not going to cause, I mean, I wouldn't reach for steroids and I, I wouldn't sort of, um, uh, you know, they've come in potential flare, give them 40 milligrams of steroids and then, and then, uh, and, and say, we'll get some tests in a minute. I would, I wouldn't do it for that, but I would, if you're just going to double up their oral, oral dose, you can always step it back down again. If actually the symptoms don't sort of materialize, all their blood tests and stool sample don't really fit that. Um, but yeah, that's how I'd approach it. So, Brilliant. Thank Last you. Last really quick question. Yes. Um, it's not yeah. interesting, sorry, but thank you. It was a really good talk. Um, I, I'm just wondering how much does people calprotectin cost as a test? Because when it was introduced, I work in Oxford, um, it was quite a lot of steps we had to go through to be able to request it on ICE. And I had the impression they were trying to ration it slightly. And I suppose um, I can definitely, you know, in someone with known IBD, that makes, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do it in a flare. So that's a really helpful learning. But there are absolute wealth of people out there with IBS. And I suppose I'm worried about overusing it um, and ending up with loads of equivocal results and not knowing what to do and then end up referring. And uh, um, so, but, but cost is part of my concern. Yeah. I'm afraid I can't really talk to the cost of the test, I'm afraid. I mean, we have, we have complete access to it in our area. Um, I agree if, if you're going to do calprotectin on every possible IBS patient, I wouldn't recommend doing that because you will get equivocal results. That's where I think your discriminatory questions in your history starts to come in. So, um, you know, looking for those slight features that might point you in that direction. So the weight loss patient, the patient's just not quite got the IBS picture. There's something else there. Those are the ones I'd be doing it in. So I certainly don't do it in everyone with IBS. Um, I do cal I do a celiac screen on everyone with IBS. That's a different talk altogether. But with calprotectin, you want to you want to be a bit more directed with it because you will get a lot of equivocals. Because a lot of people are on a PPI, they take an NSAID every now and then, and actually we're going to get some raised results. So you've got to really think about when you're using it. So so it's not just kind of right IBS workup calprotectin 
it's not really helpful for that. It's those ones where it's just like, actually, this just doesn't quite sound like IBS. There's something in this that's not, not, I'm not quite happy with, um, you know, They've said that they've got a family history of Crohn's. Yeah, I just probably want to rule that out and make sure I'm comfortable with it. And actually, if it comes back at 50, brilliant. You feel really confident and you think, right, I'm going to forge ahead with IBS. Um, if it's equivocal, you know, you just have to deal with it and that would be repeat it. Um, but but use your clinical judgment as well. You know, not everyone with a calprotectin of 120 needs to go and have a colonoscopy. Um, you know, you've got to use your clinical judgment as well. So um, hopefully that answered it a bit. I'm afraid I can't talk to the cost of the test. No, don't worry. That's fine. I can ask someone else. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's helpful. It's just that context, isn't it? Yeah. Super. All right. We're, we're at seven minutes to two. Any more for any more? Well, we still got Dr. Andrews. If not, we'll probably wrap up there. Thank you so much for giving up your lunch hour, everybody, especially Dr. Andrews at Pantelations. Let's cook up. Was very well received, and uh, um, we'll be posting a video for people who want to recap. Um, we'll be posting that on probably on Monday now. Yeah.